0: this week at Hope Point. As Jesus would say in John 8, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When you break off the wooden yoke that God has placed on you out of love for you, and you find yourself weighed down by the iron yoke, it is a far heavier and more cruel burden. And listen, folks, when we affirm people in their sin or fail to clearly define sin, Our silence is not compassionate love. Our silence is not holding back judgment. It's holding back true liberation, cutting them off from the very thing that would set them free from their bondage, the sin. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's Holy Word. We're going to be back in Jude, which is where we were a few weeks back, the last time I had the chance of preaching. And remember, it's that tiny little book right before Revelation. As you, as you turn there, let me catch you up to speed and just remind you of where we left off. Jude writes as a servant of Christ. Remember, he is also the brother of Christ, but he doesn't take that tagline. He goes the humble route of, of, of servant in his greeting. And he addresses this group of believers with a real quick calling to action, a calling to fight. Remember in verse 3, he said he's appealing to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He would say in verse 4 that there's been an inside voice that snuck into the church. It's crept in and it's it's thwarting the mission of the church. It's twisting the doctrine of the church. It's tearing it apart from the inside, this false voice of teachers who have come in and say things that are close to true but not quite true and so Jude's call to the church is to fight. That the truth has been presented once for all. Salvation is made available through the work of Christ and the canon is closed. There's nothing more to add. So it is the Christian's call to fight in order that the truth may be protected, that it may be preserved, not go, un, not go tainted and messed with or tweaked or cut out or any of that, And that ultimately it be proclaimed so that more people can be brought in. More people can receive it. More people have access to the life transformation that comes only in the truth. The truth of God's word, the truth of God's son Jesus, and the work he did on the cross. And so the the church's call is to fight. To fight in order to preserve that. That's where we were. And we're going to continue today in verse 16 five, Jude says to the believers, now I want to remind you, although you once fully know it. Here he discloses to us the weapon that he's giving them to help them fight in this fight for the faith. And it is a weapon of remembrance. There's an urgent call here to remember. And maybe the greatest advice we can glean from Jude is that one of our strongest weapons in the fight for the faithfulness of the church is not going to be found in learning something new, but in remembering what we already know. We once fully knew it, but it slipped away. We've been forgetful. And maybe perhaps for many of us in our quest for quantity over quality, we find it easier to read another book than to annotate an old one. We Speed into verse 2 rather than memorizing verse 1. There is this push oftentimes for the new at the expense of not really learning and remembering and clinging to what we already have. Jude's a little frustrated by this, and so his urgent call after calling them to fight is a call to remember. Let me remind you what you already knew. He knows that their forgetfulness will be used by the false teacher, who shows up with flashy teaching and causes them to wander away. They, they go this way or that way because they're not grounded in the truth that they've already been taught. And so there's an urgent call to remember. Don't forget what you've already come to know. Don't forget what God has already revealed. So he'll go on to give three examples In these few verses, verses 5 through 7, of Old Testament examples, all Old Testament examples of rebellion against God, starting here in verse 5. He says that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And, of course, this is referring to the Israelites who were in slavery in Egypt. And remember, God physically rescued them from their slavery, brought them out, helped them cross the sea, and then is leading them to the promised land. But because they failed to believe in his goodness... Because when the 12 spies came in and two were faithful and 10 were fearful and forgetful, they listened to the 10 rather than the two. And it was their disbelief that blocked them from entry into the promised land. And instead, they get 40 years of wandering in the desert being destroyed because they did not believe. He says, don't forget them. Group number one. Group number two Jude 6 here, the angels. So first he's dealing with God's people, Israel, and now he moves on to the spirit realm. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. More on this in a second. The third group is Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is no unusual allusion. Over 20 times throughout the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah would be referenced as an example of God's judgment poured out on those who rebelled against him, rebelled against his order, his design, his commands of how things are meant to operate. And so he lumps them into this group. But notice he also says, which likewise, so there's a connection between this group and the group before, the angels. Meaning their punishment is for a similar offense. They have done something much like that of those of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, uh, you can refer back to Genesis 6 for this, what he's referring to there, where, where Scripture says that, that these angels that he's referring to desired, in the same way that we see desire here, this unnatural desire, a strange flesh, they desired the daughters of Adam And they acted on those desires in the way that those of Sodom and Gomorrah acted on their their immoral, their displeasing desires, and in both cases, rebelled against the established order of creation. And there's punishment, severe punishment in both cases. So three examples, very quickly, of people either not believing in God, forgetting God, or rebelling against God. And in all three cases, there's severe punishment. But notice something interesting about the way these offenses are listed. Uh, we, we'd be quick to miss it. You maybe didn't even hear me say it when I read it the first time, but notice who it is that's responsible for this saving of people and also for this destroying of people. It's the character Jesus, somebody we didn't expect to see until the New Testament. And yet here he is acting on behalf of, of God in, in ec- the Exodus. Saving people from slavery. And then also the one responsible for destroying people. As a matter of fact, you look at verse 6, where it says, He has kept in eternal chains. And that word, he, that pronoun there, is referring back to the name that was first mentioned, which would be Jesus. Why do you think Jude chooses to say Jesus there and not God, not the judge, not one of these Old Testament names, but the name Jesus? I think Jude is keying in on something about the forgetfulness of his people and a a voice in the church even today that says forget the reality that Jesus and God are one. There's a grave danger for the church today in the 21st century to separate the two as two distinct characters. And then we compartmentalize their attributes. And over here, you've got the Old Testament God who always seems angry and mean. Have you seen what he does to Nazi soldiers who look at the Ark of the Covenant? At least in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's the Old Testament. But then you get over here to the New Testament and there's this nice and kind and compassionate, gentle Jesus with a lamb on his shoulders. And they would separate the two. This is happening in the church today. A mindset that that's okay. And what it does, not only does it rob Jesus of the beauty of his whole being, the duality of his being, that he is both merciful and he is just, not only does it completely tear apart our understanding of the Trinity, but it also greatly lowers the bar for the Christian in his pursuit of holiness and the preservation of the truth. Here's what it does. It, it creates this voice, and it's a, it's a voice that we are hearing in the church today, a voice that says, if we were as loving as Jesus was, more lost people would be coming to church. In their words, it's our fault for the separation of sinners from Christ. John MacArthur assesses things this way, says that whole churches have shifted their focus from the clear teachings of Scripture to the felt needs of sinners. They want to make the church service comfortable and non-confrontational. As a result, the messages they champion are theologically weak and the people they serve are doctrinally naive because the emphasis becomes on a false presentation of who Jesus really is. I recently heard a churchgoer tell me, a churchgoer say, they hate us. They as in outsiders, lost people hate us because we don't look enough like Jesus. This couldn't be further from the truth. After all, it was Jesus who said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In John and then in Matthew, he would say, you will be hated by all, including lost people, for my name's sake. It's because of me that you will be hated. Or look at James. You adulterous people. You can't have it both ways. You can't please them and please God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. According to Jesus, the more we look like him, the more we will be hated. Ask the apostles or the early church. Ask the Christians in Carthage who were thrown to the lions in the gladiator games. Ask our pastors and church planners today in North India. Who've had their buildings burnt and their bodies beaten simply because they bear the name of Jesus and refuse to fold to the Hindu extremists. Ask them if Christ's likeness makes them more liked by society. This couldn't be further from the truth. We don't take the world's dissatisfaction with us as a sure sign of failure. We don't base our assessment of the health of our church by what lost people say about us. They're lost. According to scripture, they're too blind even to assess their own current state. Why would we trust them to tell us how we're doing? Scripture says they are hostile to God, enemies of God, dead in their trespasses and sin, blind by the God of this age. I wouldn't trust them to tell me how we're doing any more than I would trust a vegan to teach me how to hunt. It just doesn't make sense to put it. Another way, we don't let the demands of the world dictate how we interpret Scripture. We let the demands of Scripture dictate how we interact with the world. Period. There's an urgent call here to remember that God does not take lightly those who rebel against Him. So three times in in these three verses, we hear what happens to people who do. Verse five, they're destroyed for their unbelief. Verse 6, they're kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Verse 7, they're undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is nothing to take lightly or shrug off or leave out of our description of who Jesus is. Jude says we must remember and somehow maintain all this while engaging in a world that is hostile to this message, a world that we have been called to love a world that we've been called to reach. How do we do both? How are we to properly manage those two seemingly opposite commands of Scripture? I want to follow Jude's example and look at the Old Testament at Jeremiah. If you'll turn with me to Jeremiah 28, he, to me, is the Old Testament Jude, or maybe Jude is the New Testament Jeremiah. Either way, they've both been given a hard message to give to people, but they deliver the message because of how much they love the people. And so we want to follow his example today. Turn to to chapter 28 of Jeremiah. As As you go there, let me get you to chapter 28. Essentially, things are not going well for Judah. They have repeatedly rebelled as God's people. They've rebelled against him. The kingdom is split, obviously. And now the king, Jeconiah, has already been taken into exile by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar has already taken him. And in the previous chapter, chapter 27, God tells Jeremiah to put this wooden yoke on his shoulders, as you would put on cattle if you're a farmer. And that yoke is meant to symbolize the prophecy coming for Judah that here comes 70 years of slavery and exile among the Babylonians as judgment for your rebellion. So Jeremiah has to wear this yoke. And this is not like Wearing the yoke for a 30-minute sermon and then taking it off. He's, this yoke is on him for a while. Into chapter 28, where he is addressed by this character, Hananiah, who is another prophet, we think. He's, a, he's introduced that way, son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon. And he speaks in the house of the Lord, just like a prophet would. He addresses Jeremiah, and he addresses all the people. And here's what he says in verse Two, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke, that yoke Jeremiah is wearing, of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house. Jeremiah had said, 70 years, here comes Hananiah, Mr. Good Guy, two years. We're gonna cut this down a little bit. I'll bring them back. All the vessels will be returned to the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, your king. And all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So you just picture, you've got these two prophets, two messengers from God. One is, looks goofy enough with the yoke on his shoulders, and here he is preaching bad news to the people. And then here comes Hananiah blowing the trumpet of victory, hope. Everything's going to get better. Things are not as bad as you think they are. Who would you be more likely to listen to? Whose message is easier to hear? Easier to deliver? Obviously good news. But it doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it true just because it's good news and it paints a nice picture of this God who is bringing judgment. So how does Jeremiah respond? He's been called a phony. Is he going to buck up and react? Is he going to fight back? Is he going to take offense now, listen to his response. The prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah the prophet. Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring, to this place, bring back to this place from Babylon. He loves it. Maybe. He wants to love it. Why? Because he loves his people. He doesn't want harm for his people. He says, oh, how I wish this could be true. I want your deliverance. I don't speak the truth to beat you down. I don't want to see you destroyed. I'm longing for your rescue. That's why I've been preaching a message of repentance for so long. Please let this be so. Do you see the genuine heart of Jeremiah to save his people? Longing for the false prophet's words to be true because it would minimize the harm of his people. This is important for us to see this. Now, however, it doesn't move him to the fact of compromise. He's not willing to say, you're right. He's saying, may this be true. I wish this could be true. And he'll go on to say, he puts I to the test and says, time will tell if you're right. You've told us two years. We'll see if we're still in slavery in two years, and then we'll know whether or not your message is true or mine. They can't both be true. But it's so key to see the heart that Jeremiah has for his people. He takes no pleasure in telling them bad news. John Calvin says, God so influenced the minds and hearts of his servants that they were not cruel or barbarous. And yet they were not made soft and pliable through the influence of humanity, but boldly declared what God had commanded them. You see this balance in Jeremiah, willing to say the hard truths, but also coming out of a deep, heart of longing for good to happen to his people, for them to be rescued, for them to be made whole, but never willing to compromise on the truth. And that's so critical. This takes us back to Jude. If you remember in the greeting of Jude from a few weeks back, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So this call for love, because obviously if these three attributes are being multiplied inside of your spirit, it's gonna overflow. And so this is a call for us to be people filled with mercy, and peace, and love as followers of Christ. But the very next verse is a call to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. Contend, that strong Greek word, apagonitsomai, which is this hand-to-hand combat. So in one verse, he says, be full of love and mercy. And in the next, he says, go to war with someone. Bodie Bauckham would say, there is no contradiction between being a loving Christian and engaging in the combat of apologetics, the combat of defending the truth of God's word. And that false voice I was speaking of earlier wants you to believe this is furthest from the truth. If you disagree with someone at all, you hate them, according to that voice. Vodhi would say, and Jude would say, and Jeremiah would say, there is a way to speak the truth, to not flinch on the truth, and yet be so overwhelmed with love for people that it's evident. This is not a contradiction. I love the way that David Roper puts it. Truth without love is dogma that does not touch the heart. But love without truth is sentimentalism that does not challenge the will. When truth is spoken with love, God's Spirit can use it to change another's mind. When we use either of these by themselves, we're seeking to do something in our own will rather than combining them to show the full picture of who God is and letting God's Spirit do the work of setting free a lost, desperate soul. Truth and love combined. This is what we see in Jude. It's what we see in Jeremiah. So we must avoid the the two ditches on the side of the road, of that road of walking faithfully as a loving truth-teller. Hananiah, he slipped into the first ditch, so controlled by his desire to win his audience and appease them that he caved on the truth. But many others are, are stuck on the other ditch, on the other side of the road, so eager to dominate their audience and win an argument that they make no progress in bringing people to life. We got to avoid both ditches and find that faithful middle ground if we seek to bring people to freedom. Let's go back to Jeremiah verse 10. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them right off of Jeremiah's back. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar again within two years. All right, so we see this, this breaking of the symbolic yoke that, that Jeremiah is wearing. Notice what the false teacher does here. This is a sure sign of a false teacher. He seeks to turn the truth teller into a villain. He's the problem. And so, in turning him to a, a villain, he offers shallow hope, cheap grace, and false love to the listeners, all the while silencing the truth. That would actually be used to redeem them. Again, you know the context here. What's the very next chapter of Jeremiah? Our favorite verse from Jeremiah. You know the plans I have for you. Good plans. After this. But we can't skip this. As Hananiah seeks to do. So he breaks the yoke. He turns Jeremiah into a villain. And let's see what happens to him for this. How does God respond? He's going to respond to Hananiah the false teacher, but he's also going to respond to those who listen to Hananiah. So sometime later, Jeremiah is sent by God to say, go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. Wooden bars are broken. Now there's iron bars in their place. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve yet Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon, and they shall serve him, for I have given to him even the beasts of the field. And look at how he turns his anger towards Hananiah. Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. You have verified by your words that you do not truly come from God, as Jeremiah does. Jeremiah does. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. And sure enough, verse 17, in that same year, in the seventh month, The prophet Hananiah died. It's interesting that he throws in there in the seventh month because in verse one, they let us know time wise that this was beginning in the fifth month when Hananiah brings this message. And so in God's irony here, he looks at Hananiah who has just finished preaching to the people within two years, you'll be set free. And now God says to Hananiah, within two months, you'll be off the face of the earth. This is nothing to play with. Do not lead my people astray. Do not utter rebellion against my name. I don't remember Hananiah saying anything rebellious or telling people to turn their backs on God. He was guising himself as a prophet of God. And yet God called that uttering rebellion. Anytime we say to people a message other than the message God has clearly stated, we're uttering rebellion against the living God. And he does not take that lightly. But Hananiah is not the only one punished for, this, for his false message. So are the people. Well, first, let me read this to you. This is, this is the, the weight of punishment. Look at what God says to another prophet, to Ezekiel. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. If I call something wicked and I tell you to warn the wicked, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Hananiah Hananiah refused to do this. He wasn't willing to call sin what it was. He wasn't willing to let God's punishment actually fall on the people who deserved it. And notice the grace of God, even in this warning, the whole point of sending someone to say, oh, wicked one, turn from your sins. Was so they could be rescued. Now they miss that. They die in their, in their iniquity. And the one who told them falsely is judged. And this is huge. But look at the penalty that falls on the people of Judah. Go tell Hananiah, Thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron, a heavier burden, a heavier yoke. The wooden yoke was easy for Hananiah to break, not the iron one. Alexander McLaren says, to throw off legitimate authority is to bind on a worse tyranny. To some kind of yoke, all of us must bend our necks. Let that sink in. All of us must bend our necks to some yoke. And if we slip them out, we do not thereby become independent, but simply bring upon ourselves a heavier pressure of a harder bondage. Breaking the wooden yoke always leads to a harder, heavier iron yoke. To the man who refuses the yoke of budgeting, circumstances will force him to submit to the yoke of debt, which is a much crueler and harsher master. You ask the first couple in the Garden of Eden who turned down and broke the wooden yoke of don't eat from this tree, and instead they're handed the iron yoke of banishment from the garden, enmity between one another, painful childbirth, thorns and thistles in work, and ultimately shame and broken fellowship before God. The iron yoke is heavier than the wooden yoke. I don't think this is news to anyone in this room, but you and I currently have front row seats of watching a culture do everything in its power To vigilantly remove any and all yokes from every individual. The gospel of self expression and self actualization and self authority. You are your own captain. Remove any naysayer from your circle. This is today's gospel. We're watching what happens to people when they break away the yokes in their life and they don't find freedom on the other side. Only darker, heavier bondage. And they know it. The yoke of their conscience tells them they know it. It's a heavier burden. As Jesus would say in John 8, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When you break off the wooden yoke that God has placed on you out of love for you and you find yourself weighed down by the iron yoke, it is a far heavier and more cruel burden. And listen, folks, when we affirm people in their sin or fail to clearly define sin, our silence is not compassionate love. Our silence is not holding back judgment. It's holding back true liberation, cutting them off from the very thing that would set them free from their bondage to sin. This is what's so important for us to realize that all of us have sought to remove the wooden yoke placed upon us only to experience the immense weight of the iron yoke, the weight of sin's grip, of addiction of despair, of fear and guilt, of the lurking grave, the weight of always looking over your shoulder, questioning. This is a weight that is far greater than any wooden yoke ever was. But there is a message of hope. There is one who is greater than the iron yoke and his name is Jesus. He alone has the power to break it. He alone has the power to lift the burden. No one else can. So to anyone today who feels crushed beneath the weight of the burden and the yoke of your sin, anyone who feels trapped inside a cage that they put themselves in, hear the victorious words of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. There is one who seeks to free you from the yoke of your own sin. And His name is Jesus. And He does so, He does so by taking it upon Himself. Listen to Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the weight of the law that was crushing us by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is able to break the yoke from your back because he took it upon his own back on that cross. He offers you a light yoke, a burden that is easy, not because it really is easy, but compared to the weight, the crushing weight of your own sin, and the eternal separation and punishment that comes with it, His yoke is so light. And He offers it to any of us who would take it, who would repent, who would believe that His way is better. So that's why I need you to see that when we, when we minimize sin, or whatever that sin is, or we steal the show from Jesus, the yoke breaker, the burden lifter. That, all, that sin already Feels immense upon the weight of the person we're talking to. They're conscious, and that yoke is heavy enough. So when we try to remove that burden before they find the cross, we're not helping them at all. Our approval, our laughter, our endorsement, or even our silence. Even if we find some way to justify that it's for the sake of bringing them closer and inviting them in, is an attempt to remove a burden that only Jesus can lift. It is that very burden upon their hearts that causes them to cry out and say, Who can rescue me? What am I to do with myself? Where is hope? It's that kind of burden that is the only weight that can truly force someone to their knees in submission to the bleeding Savior on the cross. Don't rob that from someone. Don't steal the show from Jesus. They're removing someone's burden of sin before they, if they find the cross. It cannot help them. I want to close with the pilgrim's progress because I think this gives just a beautiful picture of what happens when the burden is really removed if you know the story of the pilgrim's progress it's the story of a young christian on his journey his spiritual journey to heaven to the celestial city and early on in his journey he is just so bogged down by this ton of bricks on his back this burden that he's carrying that just causes him to stumble and it causes him to feel discouraged and it causes him to just move slower than he could without it look at what happens to him at this pivotal point in the story bunyan says he ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and little below in the bottom a sepulchre. It's a, a tomb in the rock. So he saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, as soon as he catches glimpse of the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble all the way down that hill that he just finished climbing. And so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulchre where it fell in. It fell into the tomb. And I saw it no more. I, I choke up reading it because I remember that feeling for myself. Maybe you do as well. The moment in your life when the weight that pressed upon your heart was released as you saw the cross in all its beauty. You saw the bleeding Savior taking the wrath of God upon himself for your sake. You surrendered. And there goes the burden, rolled right into the tomb where Jesus' rags still sit, Look at the way Christian responds to this. He runs away from this point. freed from the weight of that burden. Listen to his song. Thus far did I come, laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. We don't wanna rob people from this experience. We don't take off a burden that only Jesus can lift. Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulchre. Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.